0: If you would, go ahead and turn in your scriptures. We will be reading from Hebrews 10 this morning, In part two of our series begun about a month ago. I'll be reading from the NAS, and again, that is Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19, we'll be reading down through verse 31. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. Your word, which is uh, from you, proceeding directly from the mouth of God. Lord, help us to see it for what it is, to hear it for what it is, to receive it for what it is, authoritative. Thy word is truth, Lord. Sanctify us in the truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I have two dangers this morning i 'm afraid I've prepared too much, which means we 'll be here till <laughs> after lunch. The other danger would be that since I' prepared too much, i 'll just read directly from my notes, blow through it very quickly, and then that would be no good either. So bear with me, I beg your indulgence, and uh, let we'll 's see how this comes out. Now we have some scientists here in our midst, or at least some people with a scientific bent, and so if I give you the phrase. Uh, from physics, you know for every action, there is an equal and opposite what reaction so there 's quite a few scientists here. I had to look that up i 'm no science scientist. But rather than in the area of science, I am thinking more this morning in the area of etiquette, which is a real eye opener when I went and looked up rules for etiquette bothered me. One, there's no foundation for it. Nobody knows where these rules came from. That always makes me suspicious. I did find, one, the origin of the, of the idea of saying bless you after someone sneezes. You know, that's good etiquette, right? Uh, actually can be traced back to Pope Gregory in 590 AD. He made it a law that when somebody sneezed, they would immediately be blessed lest they catch the plague. And so we still do that here to this day. But, you know, in general, I couldn't find a root of some of these rules. And it's one of those areas I stumble in. You know, when somebody does you a good deed, and somebody gives you a special gift, you know, how do you respond? What is the right thing to do? What is the proper response? After I looked at some of these rules and realized how many I'd been missing, I put it away. I was afraid that I have insulted too many of you <laughs> in, in the recent past, and I didn't need any more guilt. So we, we put away the rules of etiquette, but the idea remains, uh, in spite of some of these rules that seem arbitrary, um, the idea that for an action there is a proper reaction. For a gift there is a proper response. So when somebody sends you a card that's just a thank you, we don't necessarily have to send a card back, but if somebody gives you a car, then maybe the response should be a little more gracious or uh, extravagant. Well... The idea here this morning is what's the proper response? What's the proper response to the truth of the gospel? And in our passage, uh, like I said, we, we started this now a month ago. Um, But in our passage, what we have here is a presentation of the gospel right off the bat in verses 19 to 21. In fact, if you're taking notes, let me just give you the outline up front. We have a presentation of the gospel, then we have the proper response, and then we have a fearful warning. So in a sense, there is an improper response to the truth of the gospel as well, as we will see. So he gives us this presentation of the gospel in in verses 19 through 21. It's really in kind of a concise form. Uh, It's not all spelled out because he's coming to the end of a section that he's been teaching on now for five chapters. And so he's giving us this summary, and we'll have to unpack that a little bit. And that's, in part, the beauty of the gospel. You know, there's so many places in Scripture we can go to and look up the gospel, and it is presented in so many different ways. It's not that there are different gospels, but that the gospel itself is such a precious gem and it has so many facets, and it can be explained so many different ways, and it has so many different parts to it that when we study all those things from these different angles, we get a bigger view. We get a richer, you know, a more depth look of the gospel. And so this morning, the gospel presentation here focuses on Christ in his role as our high priest on our behalf. Now, again, it doesn't say that explicitly here, but there are elements here in the first three verses. That point us in that direction. It begins by saying, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through his veil that is the flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, these things can best be understood by going back and reading chapters 8 through 10, which we cannot do. But the language here and some of the words here are pointing us back to the service of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And you're all familiar with that. So when we talk about entering through the veil, we are reminded of the veil in the tabernacle. Uh, this was later on in the temple as well, but in Hebrews they don't talk much about the temple. Uh, they, they always go back to the tabernacle. So we talk about entering through the veil, and the veil is somehow connected with the flesh of Christ. We talk about bringing blood sacrifices, which is what the ministry of the priesthood was. And the, the tabernacle is interesting because it is, it is two things at the same time. One, it is the emblem or the symbol of the presence of God among his people. And if we were to ask everybody, you'd say, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing, right? God comes and dwells among his people in this tabernacle, in this holy place. But on the other hand, while not a bad thing, it is a reminder of some negatives because you can't go in there. You don't have access in the tabernacle. In fact, if you start from inside the holiest place of the tabernacle and work your way out, you'll see that there's a veil and there's another room you know where sacrifices are brought in, where incense is burned. And then there's another veil where you're out into a courtyard. And in that courtyard, there's an altar where sacrifices, where blood sacrifices are offered. And there's tables all around where people are offering blood sacrifices. And there's, there's basins of water where there are to be cleansings and washings. And as we move out, there's another veil then that surrounds the whole courtyard. And all these things are actually obstacles to you approaching God. You know, on one hand, God here is dwelling among his people as a great condescension. But on the other hand, it's a reminder that you can't go there. And so it is a little bit of a mixed bag when I look at it. You can't go there. And that's backing out. On your way back in, you realize that there's so many obstacles, it's it's almost impossible to think or to consider approaching God at all. And if you do so, you have to come with blood. And the blood must have flowed liberally. It must have been a totally bloody place. But as you get closer, you find out that fewer and fewer people can go there. And yet there's this one special person who's been appointed by God, the high priest, who walks into the holy place. And he burns incense, and he, and he trims the, the, the lamps and keeps it burning. And then one time a year, he walks into the holy of holy place, but never without blood. Blood for his own sins, and blood for the sins of the people, offering up to God. And then if you think a little bit deeper, you find out that these things ultimately are useless as far as the purification of the sins of the people. And, you know, Hebrews tells us that these blood sacrifices could never take away sins. They could never cleanse the conscience. They made somebody maybe ceremonial clean so that he could approach, but, but it was only an outward cleansing, not an inward cleansing of the conscience, of the guilty conscience due to the sins that we all have. And so we see the futility and the failure of this priestly ministry in the tabernacle. And then comes Jesus. And then comes Jesus. All these things are actually just pictures pointing us back to him. All these sacrifices that cannot take away sins point us back to him who offered himself up as the one sacrifice for all time to take away sins. And what is gained by this sacrifice then is that all those obstacles have been removed. All those obstacles that keep you from approaching the presence of God, have been removed. You know, it hasn't made you better. In fact, whoever, once again, put together the worship bulletin this morning does a great job of pointing out there is no health in me. There is no soundness in me. But yet, with Christ as the one who intercedes between me and God, with Christ whose sacrifice of his own body and blood on my behalf is counted for me, now I have access to the Father. All the obstacles removed. I don't have to go through all of this. I don't have to jump through the hoops. I don't have to clear the hurdles. All these obstacles have been removed. Where the old system failed and that these sacrifices could not take away sins and in fact reminded us of our unfitness, all these things have now been removed in Christ who is our high priest. And that is the presentation of the author of Hebrews. He reminds us that Jesus is our high priest in at least two ways. He is both an offering and he is our advocate. Now the advocate part, the offering we see in verse 19, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. And then he has inaugurated this way for us through the veil that is his flesh, which was torn for you. But then in verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. See, he inaugurated. There's a shift in tenses there. This is the accomplished work of Christ in offering himself as the offering which reconciles you to God. But now there's a present tense, we have a great high priest over the house of God. Once again, we have to look for the context, because it's not as clear. But if we look back up in chapter 10 to verse 12, we see that Jesus currently, present tense, having offered one sacrifice for sin, sat down at the right hand of God. He is there for you even now. And what is he doing Well, in the context, you have to turn back to chapter 725 where it says, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is your advocate, seated at the right hand of the Father, speaking to the Father on your behalf, representing you on your behalf. And because of both of these things... Christ, as our priest, as the satisfactory offering for all of our sins, which removes the obstacles, and as the one who is at the Father's right hand, able to whisper into the king's ear on your behalf. He is our advocate as well. And so that is the presentation of the gospel we have here in chapter 10 in a summary form. If we sum it up, Christ has done for us what we could not do. We were separated from God, estranged from God, because of our sins, there were obstacles in the way keeping us from God, and Christ has cleared all of these away by his death and resurrection and then currently sits at God's right hand, still ministering on your behalf as he intercedes. This reminds me, there are, there are different kinds of military leaders. There are some who sit in, a, in an office and come up with these battle plans, and then they send their men on their way. Well, Teddy Roosevelt was not one of these kind. He gained a different respect from his men because supposedly at the Battle of San Juan Hill, he's the kind of leader who walked outside, got up on his horse, and then said, y'all follow me, and then charged up the hill. But there's another kind. Jesus is another kind. Remember, he is is better than these others. Well, Jesus, he didn't wait for his men. But rather, he went and took the hill all by himself on your behalf. And then he turned around and says, y'all come up here. Okay, that's what Jesus has done. That is the gospel presentation in this part of Hebrews of Jesus as our high priest. And so the question for us this morning is, what's the proper response to this? What is the right etiquette? What's the right response to what God has done for you? And let me just give a little disclaimer here, a little editorial comment. This is not legalism. You know, Anytime we approach the idea of giving us a list of things that we must do, then, then everybody starts to think, you know, are we, are we adding up burdens on people's shoulders that they cannot bear? No, 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 no. Not legalism. If you think that, you haven't understood what I just said about the gospel, what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. This is the privileges you are called to. This is the access to the Father has been graciously granted to you. The throne of grace opened up to you that you might approach him without fear. Okay? That's the proper response. These are your privileges. This is the access. This is what you did not previously have. So our proper responses, and this begins in 22, goes through 25. Now, to make it easy to remember, because teachers are always looking for things to stick in your heads, let me ask, who here likes salad? I know, I know, we all should eat salad. (laughs) I'm not a salad guy. But, salad is supposed to be good for you. This morning, I just want you to remember this. I want to give you three heads of lettuce. And it's very straightforward. I know it's cheesy, but you'll probably never forget it again. It's the proper response to the work of God's grace for you. Three heads of lettuce. Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And then verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another. So three heads of lettuce. Now, will you ever forget it? Okay, let's look at our three heads of lettuce under our main point of the proper response, let us. Let us draw near. Verse 22, actually this idea was begun back in verse 19, saying, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, well now, since we have confidence to enter, since the way has been made clear for us to enter, let us draw near. I was, as I was thinking on this, I was a little bit mindful of the psalmist in 84.10, who says, I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. It's a true sentiment, true statement. I would rather stand at the household, at the doorway of the household of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. See, he's just got his foot in the door. And even that is preferable than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. But that's not what being, you're being called to here today. You're not being told to come stand at the doorway. You're not lucky to just get your foot in the door. You're being told to draw near. There is a closeness. There's a spatial intimacy here that you're being called to. You're not just in the door. You're up to the very throne room. You're up to the very footstool of God as he sits upon the throne. You're being called to an intimacy. It's not a matter of just standing in the back And if standing is blessed, then how much more are you blessed as you're being told to draw near? It's not just access, but intimacy with the Father. If we turn back to chapter 4, there's only two other places that this, this idea of drawing near is mentioned in the book of Hebrews. 24, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is not just the intimacy and the closeness as we're told to approach our Father, but this is the, the right to have access in prayer, in supplication, to ask our Father for what it is we need and to expect to receive it. You're being called to an intimacy, an access, a privilege something you did not have before. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and aid to help in our time of need. I also think here, though, that there are connotations of worship. We're not to just draw near in prayer and supplication, but we are to draw near in worship. This is mentioned in chapter 10 once again back in verse 1, uh, speaking of the Old Testament form of worship. Uh, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. It mentions the offering of sacrifices, which can't make perfect those who draw near. But it connects the idea there of drawing near with worship. In the Old Testament, very sacramental, sacrificial worship, and that's not what we do But yet we are being told to draw near, not just in prayer and supplication, but also in worship. We do not bring bloody sacrifices anymore, because Christ has fulfilled that for us. But we do bring a sacrifice of praise. We do bring ourselves as living sacrifices, offering ourselves up to God, in gratitude for what God has done for us. And then it goes on and gives us instructions to draw near in this manner. Draw near like this. How do we come? We come with a sincere heart. This means a heart without guile, not a double-minded heart, not a, not a heart with multiple affections, but a single-minded, a heart of single affections as we draw near to God, and a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Now, if you're like me, that full assurance of faith sometimes can be difficult. I mean, how do we draw near in full assurance of faith? Right when we, when we read and we pray, as we've done this morning, and there's this, this reminder of who I am and what I am by myself, how do I draw near in a full assurance of faith? I was helped in this by a little article I read this past week, uh, actually by Dave Pallison, which was interesting. Published a little bit out of time, but uh, he was talking about a friend who had been involved in grievous sins that even after salvation tormented him. And he said some days what he had to do is simply presume that he was acceptable to God. Just presume it. And he didn't feel it. He had to train himself to presume it. And I endorse this. Presume it to be true. Learn to speak to your heart rather than listening to it. The truths of God's word. We're given help in this right here in this verse. We are to draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Those verbs, participles, whatever they are, are actually passive in form. And so it's pointing out that these are the things that have been done to you, have been done for you. You don't sprinkle your own heart. You don't wash your own body. That is part of the benefit of the work of Christ on your behalf. He has sprinkled your hearts clean. He has washed your bodies with pure water. This is the work of him on your behalf. And these are the things you speak to yourself. You are not a slave to your feelings. You are to learn to speak to your heart rather than listening to it. Having had your heart sprinkled clean and your body's washed, there's something done for you. And you are to constantly be reminding yourself of the truth. There is a scene in a, in a movie, Luther. Have you ever seen, the, I don't know what year that was done, but a fairly modern movie on Luther? Love that. It's well done if you haven't seen it. But in this, he's preaching. And he says, so when, when the Satan comes to tempt you and to remind you that you are no good, what is the proper response to that? He says, you look him in the eye and you say, what of it? What of it? I am what you say I am. I am what my guilty conscience says I am, if I'm all there is. But I have one who is my advocate. I have one who is my high priest. I am one, I have one on my behalf who has made up for all of this where I lack and has qualified me to come into the presence. And so with that in mind, speaking to your heart, we come with full assurance of faith and we draw near to the throne of God. So let us draw near. And our second head of lettuce, let us hold fast. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast. Now, at first glance, might say, you might think this says, Hold fast our confession. I mean, we are a Presbyterian church, we have a confession. And some people, some interpreters, think that they may have been referring to maybe an early church confession. Hold fast your confession, a statement of faith. Certain propositions, we say our biblical teachings, hold firm to these things as if they're true. But it doesn't stop there at confession. I don't think that's the best understanding. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, hold fast, The, the picture given there is a firm grip, like as if your life depends on it and that is intensified by this without wavering, so it's hang on to the confession of our hope. Not merely confession, but the confession of our hope. It has a future connotation. It is looking forward with confidence in the promises of God. Not just looking at the here and now, not just looking at your statement of faith, not just looking at your circumstances which maybe bring doubts and make you wonder, but holding fast the confession of our hope Hope in the promises of God. Now, in the next chapter, we have the Hall of Fame of Faith, or the Hall of Faith, whatever you want to call it. We're uh, not going to read it. Let me just point out Abraham, Abraham being a picture of faith for us in this matter. Not only the faith that believed in God's, in God's gifts, in God's salvation, but in the reality of God's promises, which, never, which in his life he never fully grasped. He didn't. Now, some of the ladies at the refuge have been through all this, so don't answer. Don't answer. okay? But how old was Abraham when he was called? 75. How old was Abraham when he first received the child of promise that God had spoken about way back then? 100. 25 years he waited for the promise of God, but he persevered in hope. But that wasn't the only part of the promise. He was promised the land. He said, everywhere you walk, I'm going to give it to you. Now, at Abraham's death, you know how much of that land he possessed? Now, he lived like a king in the land because God did bless him. But how much did he actually possess? A burial plot. But he persevered in hope, believing that the promises of God are true, even against the reality of his circumstances. He had been given a token of the promise of God to cling to, but he hadn't been given the reality of the promise of God. He persevered in hope. By the way, how old was he when he died? 175. God promised him when he was 75. A hundred years he waited. Never fully possessing, but understanding that the promises of God are true in this life or the life to come. If God has made promises and in this life, it doesn't seem that he has fulfilled them. (laughs) Then there's a life to come when he will, because God's word can't fail. We hold on to the hope of our confession. And we have Abraham as an example of that. He persevered by faith. He had the token. He had the seals. And so do you, by the way. You have the token. You have the token. You have the Holy Spirit who has been given to you as a seal of the promise of God, a seal of your inheritance to come. You have in your possession a token of the reality of the promise of God. You just don't yet have it in its fullness. We live in this already, not yet. And in this, we have to avoid two errors. One is expecting too much now. I have a real problem with some TV preachers. I do. And I hate to, I hate to be too harsh or too mean. Uh, I'm not saying unbelievers. I'm trying to be careful here. But this promise of your best life now, if that is the entire substance of your ministry and gospel, then you, at the very least you're unbalanced, and at the very most you're in error. I'm not talking your best life now. There's one error we must avoid is expecting too much now. And then, due to our frustrations, overreacting to that and giving up on our hope for then. We've got to hold to the realities of the already, not yet. Yes, there are kingdom realities in the presence. We now have peace with God. We now have forgiveness of sins. We now have fellowship among the believers. But with this... By the word of Christ himself, we also have trials, persecutions. The world, we don't fit like we did one time. And so it maybe leaves us uneasy. We don't fit. There's that existential angst. I love that phrase. There's just this feeling that I don't belong anymore. And you have to persevere in this. You've been given a taste of glory. But glory is yet to come. And so, our second head of lettuce let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. And again, it does not point us to ourselves, it points us to him who is faithful. Hudson Taylor used to say, It's not a striving and a struggling to have faith, but it's a looking off to the faithful one. He who promised you is faithful. Draw near. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Learn to speak to your heart. He who promised is faithful. No matter what you see in the here and now, it's coming. It's coming in its fullness. Glory unspeakable. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. And now let us consider. Let us consider what? Let us consider how to stimulate one another. The word for stimulate can be translated provoke. Provoke. Be careful how you apply that word. I'm not looking to be provoked. Okay, but let us stimulate. One another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our responsibilities in God's kingdom are never only for ourselves. And so once again, we are pointed back to our responsibilities to one another. After all, God is busy building a community, knitting us together in a body, building up a city, a holy temple. And we are all a part of that. And so we all have a responsibility to one another. We are to urge one another to do the good thing. To do the right thing. Sometimes to do the hard thing. We have a responsibility to one another. Now, I'm not a gardener either. I don't eat salad, not too often. And I don't garden. But years ago, I remember, someone told me who was a gardener, that there are some plants... And he gave me a hibiscus as an example. Now, somebody who's an expert on hibiscus would probably come up and tell me I'm wrong later. But let me just tell you what he told me. Okay, hibiscus is an example of one plant that does not do well alone, primarily because of windburn. So, one hibiscus set out in the field by itself, unprotected from the wind, you know, it looks spindly, doesn't flourish, doesn't flower as much as others. But what is sufficient protection for that hibiscus are other hibiscus. Hibiscus in clumps or clusters. Hibiscus against a wall, yes, but right for the purpose of our illustration, just hibiscus in clusters protect one another from wind and from wind burn. And so they can flourish quite well so long as they're in a group. And that's the picture we're given here this morning. We are to consider how to stimulate one another. We are part of a group so that we all might flourish so that we all might be fruitful. So for this to happen, we must gather together. So not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We must gather together. And there is the implication here, I think there's a direct connection here, saying that how do we encourage one another? We gather together. The gathering together itself is encouraging to one another. Let me give you an example. I endorse this idea. Just gathering together tells me I'm not alone in this. Because we just talked about how sometimes we don't feel like we fit anymore, six days a week. But I come here, and there's a fit. There's a fit we don't have elsewhere because we are among the people of God. We are among the company of the redeemed. But there's more to it than just that. Not only do I fit, I take encouragement from each of you, and some of you probably don't even realize it or in what way. I take encouragement from you older folks among us. Now, we have a fair amount of elderly, mature people here. I'm not just playing to the crowd, though. Um, I have in my own family uh, some, some grandparents, some distant relatives who, when I grew up, we all went to church together, Okay, they, they taught in the Sunday school, sang in the choir, you know, took up the offering, whatever. I'm talking involvement here, not just making an appearance. Until they got you know, a little bit older. And it seemed like when they retired from the rest of the life, life, they retired from the church as well. But what does that say about the value of what they claim to believe in? It's no longer significant. It no longer has the value it used to have. It no longer, the things that you claimed as realities, are they? You see how it allows kind of doubts to come in from the example set? Well, some of you, especially as you get older, come here at great personal cost, great personal uh, expenditure of effort. And I understand it would be easier to stay home sometimes, would it not? There's a lady here I consider a good friend who's asked me many times, why am I still here? What's my purpose? I can't answer God's purpose for you in full, but I can tell you that when you're here, I'm encouraged because I understand in you making the effort to come here, you're showing me the value of gathering together and worshiping our King. And so there are many of us here who it's not easy for, but you're an encouragement to me. And that's just one example. And this cannot happen except by the gathering together. I don't see you the rest of the week. You know, But when you come here, I see you, and it gives weight to your testimony that this is worth, this is worthwhile. There's, there's reality here. And so you are an encouragement to me. You simply encourage me by your perseverance in the things of God, even as your bodies begin to fail. And yet, here you are. So let us draw near. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling. And then that comes to the time of a a strong, strong warning. Um, Remember who the author is here and who he is writing to and their spiritual condition. Back in chapter 2, the author warns the recipients of the letter of the Hebrews to pay closer attention and warns them against drifting away. In chapter 5, verse 11, he tells them that they have become dull of hearing and they have not continued to progress in the faith as was his expectation they would. He says they still need milk instead of meat. In chapter 6, 11, and 12, he calls them to diligence rather than sluggishness. And just as an interesting note, the word for sluggishness in chapter 6 is the same word for that dull of hearing in chapter 5. But just gives us this picture that some sort of spiritual lethargy has infected this gathering of believers that he's writing to. Maybe an apathy, a carelessness at the very least about the things of God. And since there are trials or pressures or things brewing on the horizon, he's worried for them. And he wants to shake them out of their slumber. He wants to wake them up from their lethargy. And so what does he do when he turns to verse 26? He reminds them that there is a judgment to come, and especially for those who commit the sin of apostasy. Now, the sin of apostasy, I want to be very careful here. So I've actually written a couple of definitions I found that I think give us um, just a good picture of apostasy. One, a denial of previously held, professed religious beliefs and a distancing from the community that holds to them. Note there, by the way, the connection to verse 24 and 25 about not forsaking the assembling together. These are people who now maybe are tempted or who are denying these previously held professions of faith and even removing themselves from the community that hold to these beliefs for one reason or another. Uh, Further related to apostasy, it is called an act of unpardonable rebellion against God and his truth. Unpardonable sounds like a serious sin unpardonable. Look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Look down at verse 29. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Serious sin. And what it's saying there is that just like in the Old Testament, anybody who forsook the law of Moses... You know, they deserve judgment, how much more now? Those who insult the spirit of grace. Man, that strong language has trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant. That's the new covenant, which Jesus said, this is my blood spilled for you. The new covenant in my blood. To, to claim, to profess faith in these things and then to walk away is a grave sin, is a grave insult, One more. With respect to the covenant relationship, these are people who have made a profession of faith. With respect to the covenant relationships established through prior profession of faith, apostates actually place themselves under the curse and wrath of God as covenant breakers, having already entered into the final state of irrevocable condemnation. And he's warning them. You don't want to go there. Okay? Now, we do have to... Let me point out that we do not believe true believers can commit this sin. And we'll, I'm going to get back to that. True believers cannot commit the sin of apostasy. We looked at that really when we, when we spoke of our salvation last time, when we looked in chapter 10 and 11 through 14, and the work of Christ, which he has done once and for all. For all time. It cannot be undone. It is for all time. So it's not a sin a true believer can make. But it is a sin some who profess faith in Christ, and who joined themselves to the community of Christ, can commit. The author has already spoken on this subject at least once. Back in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, he says, For in the case of those who've been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. But this is not something the believer can do. Well, how can the believer say all these things? How can these things be said about them? They've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift Been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Well, in answer to that, back in chapters 3 and 4, he gives us the example of the Old Testament saints. He gives us them as an illustration of apostasy, pointing to the Old Testament people of God. Think about it. They had been redeemed from Egypt. They had been identified as the people of God. They had taken part in the sacramental worship of God, in the Passover and in circumcision. They had been, the New Testament tells us, baptized us through, you know, through the Red Sea. God had presented the covenant. They said, yes, we will do it. We, they, they made agreement with God. And yet none of this, none of this was united by faith in those who took part. And so they fell away. They, they eventually proved true what was truly in their hearts. Those are apostates. And they rejected God, they, they insisted on proceeding in the hardness of their hearts, and God rejected them. Now surely you can see the parallels between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. Those who come, make the profession of faith, take part in the sacraments like we will last week. Membership in the church, you know, maybe proceed a long ways in appearing to be a believer, and yet they do turn away. We had an example of this in the news just in the last two weeks, as a former Christian leader has now said, by, by any definition of a Christian, I am no longer one. That's a terrible sin. He's in a terrible place. Now, This is consistent with what we will teach or what we would look at if we took the time to look at the parable of the sower. You know how it is. The sower went out to sow and he scattered seed on different soils. Only one in those four soils actually turned out to be a true believer. But it says that some received the word with gladness and for a while appeared like one of us. But when trials came, they fell away. These are apostates. He is warning them against making this mistake of doing, of of actually proceeding in such a way to show forth the reality of what's in their hearts that they would be disqualified from the salvation of God. It is consistent New Testament teaching. But the author here does not believe that the recipients of this letter are apostates, at least not most of them. After he deals with this issue in chapter 6, he he says in verse 9 of chapter 6, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. In chapter 10, where we are, if we go to the end of the chapter, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. So if he doesn't think they can do this, why use such harsh language? Why go so far to scare the out of them? Which is really what he's doing. Why do it? My dad actually can be a source of quite a bit of wisdom on various topics. And I don't, didn't always realize it at the time because I was not the most receptive of subjects as a young person. Uh, but, you know, sometimes when we grow up, we realize our parents are wiser than we thought they were. Caleb, keep that in mind. There will come a day I won't look so stupid. Not that he treats me that way, to his credit. Um, my dad's advice at one time when it came to ra- parents raising children it says, parents and children will relate to one another on three, one of three levels, for the most part. Love, respect, and fear. Love, respect, and fear. But what I found interesting, and the reason it stuck in my head, because he said the child chooses. Really? That's fascinating to me. The child chooses. The parent is kind of passive in this. You know, you have different children. They have different needs, different attitudes, different whatever. The child chooses the level at which they are to relate, but the parent For the child's good, we'll do whatever is necessary for the desired outcome, the desired result. As I've gotten older, as I've raised kids of my own, as I've seen other parents raise their kids, I think there's a lot of truth in this. And if it's true of our fathers on earth, how much more your father in heaven? How much more your father in heaven? According to the Westminster Confession of Faith, there is a faithful response to the word of God preached. The faithful response to the word of God written. And the response of true faith to the word of God includes obedience to the commands of God. That sounds like at least respect. Embracing of the promise of God, which sounds like love. And trembling at the threatenings of God, which sounds like fear. Does that mean if I disobey my father? Or if I simply have to operate out of a fear of my father for a time, that I am somehow no longer his child? Not hardly. Not hardly. Not hardly. How much more your Father in heaven? Trembling at the threatenings. The author here is seeking to disturb them from their lethargy by stimulating the proper response of faith in them, even if necessary, using the terrors of the judgment to come to shake them up and to get them to keep on keeping on. So actually, instead of three heads of lettuce, we could call it four. Four heads of lettuce. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us consider how we might stimulate one another assembling together. And if necessary, let us tremble. But whatever it takes, let us persevere in faith and keep on keeping on. That's the message of the book of Hebrews to you this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And though we are not worthy subjects... Uh, on our own lord you have qualified us you have brought us you have adopted us you have made us your children so lord having done all that now work faith in us that we might respond appropriately to the word uh written spoken and in all these things that you might receive the glory and honor lord in christ's name we pray amen